Hey, y'all. And regardless of where you are or what time it is, good morning. It's me, Matt Rogers, telling you it is time for work, okay? Even if you are currently listening to this on Labor Day, it's still time to punch that clock and get to business, okay? Picture me this morning. I tumble out of bed and then I stumble to the kitchen, all right? I pour myself a cup of ambition. Just kidding. I ordered a cold brew with oat milk on a mobile app from a major coffee chain, and I'm really sorry about that to all my small coffee establishment workers and business owners. I will do better in the future. And then I yawn and stretch and tried my best to come to life for you, my listeners, of the HBO Max Movie Club, because today, on the podcast, our job... J-O-B, is to celebrate the iconic little romp of a film, 9 to 5, starring Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, and Dolly Parton themselves. And after you listen to this episode, if you think I deserve a fat promotion, please tag at HBO Max Movies and let them know because they do in fact pay me like Chris Harper pays Patti LuPone's salary, okay? Okay. Directed by Colin Higgins and written by Higgins and Patricia Resnick, 9 to 5 was released on December 19th, 1980 and was a major hit at the box office, grossing $103 million worldwide off a $10 million budget, which, come on, tenfold? Absolutely. Originally conceived and dreamed up by Jane Fonda, she said the following about the film, and I quote, My ideas for films always come from things that I perceive in my life. A very old friend of mine had started an organization in Boston called 9 to 5, which was an association of women office workers. I heard them talking about their work, and they had some great stories. What I found was that secretaries know the work they do is important, is skilled, but they also know they're not treated with respect. They call themselves, quote-unquote, office wives. They have to put gas in the boss's car, get his coffee, buy the presents for his wife and mistress. So when we came to do the film, we said to Higgins, what you have to do is write a screenplay which shows you can run an office without a boss, but you can't run an office without the secretaries. End quote. Mic drop. Fonda researched mostly women who started in the workplace late in life due to recently being divorced or widowed. For those of you who have never seen the movie because you hate women, just kidding, but really do better. Also, it's literally streaming right now on HBO Max, so really, what is your excuse? Pause this now and go watch Three Icons in a Workplace Farce right now. Here is a brief synopsis of what they call in the biz the film's plot. Now, This is going to be without giving any of the old fun stuff away. I will get into spoilers with my guest, but I'm not going to fuck you up like that up top, okay? I'm still giving you the chance to turn back now, do your due diligence, go watch the movie, and then return to this episode. Okay, plot. Here we go. Three women, Judy Burnley, played by Jane Fonda, Violet Newstead, played by Lily Tomlin, and Dorley Rhodes, played by Dolly Parton in her film debut, work at Consolidated Industries. Hart, their boss, is married, but he makes advances towards Dorley and lies all around the office that he's sleeping with her. As a result of thinking that she obviously gets special treatment because of this, the women in the office shun Dorley. One day, the hardworking Violet, who basically runs the office, is not given a promotion. Hart tells her the company wants a man in this position. It's some sexist bullshit. Violet, in a moment of rage, tells Doralee that her affair with Hart is common knowledge. 
Dorley is floored, says she absolutely is not sleeping with Hart and has turned him down many times, which she has. And then she threatens to use her gun on Hart the next time he makes an indecent proposal in a great scene. The film was well-received in terms of awards recognition, mostly for the song 9 to 5, written by Dolly Parton, which won the Grammy Awards for Country Vocal Performance and Country Song, and was even nominated for Song of the Year and Song Written for Visual Media. This was one of Dolly's biggest hits of the decade. While filming the movie and developing the song, Parton found she could use her long acrylic fingernails to simulate the sound of a typewriter. She wrote the song on set by clicking her nails together and forming the beat. The woman is, if you didn't know by now, a full-on musical genius. 9 to 5, the tune went to number one for two weeks on the Billboard Hot 100. The song was also 9 to 5's sole Oscar nomination, though Dolly Parton did receive a nomination for Best Actress in a Musical or Comedy at the Golden Globe Awards. Remember those? We've got a real good guest today, and he's actually a Jane Fonda superfan, so very excited to dig into this one with him. You may recall he guested on season one of this podcast for my episode on Clueless, and he's back, 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 back again. You know him from Jimmy Kimmel Live, the incredible pop culture podcast over at Crooked called Keep It, and if you're a queer person in the greater Los Angeles area, his grinder profile. It's my friend, the one and only Louis Vertel. Let's bring him in right now, shall we? We shall. Uh, just a step on the boss man's ladder, more like just a, another amazing guest on this podcast, Louis Fertel. Oh my God. What's going on? You hated it. <laughs> no, I love your poetry. I've said this before. I've been reading you since your live journal days, and I think you really bring it. I have to be honest with you. I did it because I knew you'd hate it. And that's okay, sort of that's right. sort of what I how I like to play with you. Um, listen, you're thanks. testing me. It's an odd couple dynamic. <laughs> yes, I would be the Oscar Madison here. Yes. So I would say you're sort of the Jane, and I'm the Lily. I guess. Oh, I'm a perturbed 42 year old <laughs> with like a, a a perm under what I'm going to call a bonnet. What kind of hat does she wear in this movie? I don't really understand a lot of what goes on in this movie. And thank you for joining me to discuss what you described as a kookaroo movie, which I actually I would 100 percent agree that kookaroo is really the only way to really describe how this movie unfolds. Well, it's I guess I would compare it pretentiously to El Motivar in that it starts mm. out seeming like a movie about a normal reality. Right. And then four things happen where it's not just heightened, we're now on Neptune. Yeah, isn't it interesting? Like, I was reading uh, several reviews of this film, and it, it it received, like, mixed to positive reviews and uh, for interesting, uh, you know, they all had different interesting polls about it. But one thing that they said was it almost was, like, it's almost indicative of the time because while it is, like, a feminist film, I guess you could, you could say that about it, it sort of, as it goes, gets lighter and lighter, almost like they want to back off the themes a little bit. And Jane has talked about how, you know, she was very conscious in the making of this film but not feeling like she was preaching to the audience or getting on a soapbox. So it almost feels like tonally it does get lighter so that it doesn't feel like people watching it, maybe they were afraid they'd get irritated by the messaging. Yeah, though I did notice that like halfway through the movie when they have kidnapped him and are hiding him. Right. The moment when they decide to clean up the office, so to speak, and make yeah. it a better place to work in, that suddenly felt like the Jane Fonda, like, uh, yeah. Uh, campaign wagon was running the film because right. suddenly it's like people of color all over the office there's <laughs> disabled people in the office yes. women are making all the decisions like suddenly yeah. it felt like oh now i know who that is yeah it felt like fonda utopia there in the office for yes. a second but you know what's interesting about this like and I, I i was watching it again and 
there really are some great grounded scenes earlier in this movie. Like when Lily finds out she's not getting the promotion, she's fantastic in that scene. Dolly in the initial confrontation scene with Franklin Hart, she's really great in that. And I just feel like it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy that that's Dolly's first movie. Isn't it wild? She wasn't even initially, I think, the first choice for that role. Like the story goes that Jane Fonda was driving home and heard yeah. two doors down on the radio. And she thought, oh, of course, Dolly Parton's a movie star. And let me just tell you, I mean, you obviously know when we turn pop stars into movie stars, that often doesn't work out for us. There are famous examples of it working out well. But mm-hmm. Dolly seeming not just grounded, but like the role was written for her. I mean, that's all her doing. That's all her talent. It's really yeah. surprising. It's really, and you know, it, it's it's interesting because she's such a huge star that you really can't step away from the fact that it is Dolly, but it doesn't rub me. Like, her persona is so imbued in the movie, so much so that her post-credits thing is, you know, Doralee goes off to become a country-western singer, and that's obviously a nod to Dolly Parton, but it never bothers me. I never question her in the fabric of this reality. I think because her performance is so good and it's not even just the comedy it's not her coming in and like being doing being like a body comedian it's she's inhabiting and also i think something she's amazing at is the early scenes in which she's like swatting away her horrible boss dora lee i'm serious don't you understand i am crazy about you you're all i ever think about mr hart i've told you before i'm a married woman the way she is both like maintaining her distance and not getting in his face the way like a woman might have to in that situation right. is exactly right. It feels very well observed in addition to very realistic. Like I don't see her chewing on the lines or having problems like getting into the scene. She seems exactly right there. We know from, from reading about the movie and like it being a part of the cultural canon that obviously like Dolly's um, preparation and in going into this film was extensive. She even learned the lines of everyone else in the movie because she thought that that's what you had to do. But it seems like she really did soak into what it really means to be a woman working as a secretary in an office at that time, which is you sort of do have to code switch and you do have to find a way to be useful in that atmosphere and i think that what's so what's so sad about the reality of women in the workplace at that time is the purpose that you have to serve sometimes when your boss is like that in order to seem valuable you almost have to you know make yourself available for those types of weird advances because they'll get rid of you if they don't i mean it's just right you have to play your position which is indulge a little bit step away Etc. And then, of course, you become a source of gossip for the rest of the office, which yeah. is humiliating on another level. So, in, in most ways, it's an indignity. And then, obviously, like the reviews come out, and she's obviously the big pull from the movie. But as an ensemble, it is great. I mean, and they are so much fun oh, together. God. I mean, if we can talk about like where the movie goes and whether or not it's Kukuru or not, but it really is like so fun to see the three of them together and like talk about just like it seems like instant chemistry. And I think that another like weird sexist thing about the movie is I think all the, the, the director, the other producers were like anticipating there was going to be conflict on set. And then they get along like a house on fire and remain friends to this day. Totally. The chemistry also builds really organically throughout the movie in a way where you feel like you're really just hanging out with them, which is unusual because among all the roles Jane Fonda has played, this is probably the one that's least like her, Hmm. you know, just like, obviously she, she took it to like sort of, I don't know about change her image, but obviously throughout the 70s, she was, you know, maybe the most controversial uh, actress in Hollywood. So she took this role that was relatable to Housewives. And even she said, I took the worst of the three roles in the movie. Hmm. But 
she does have, I think, comically moments in this movie that feel the truest to her. What's interesting is, by this point, even though Jane had won Oscars for dramas, nominated for all dramas throughout her career, she actually had a versatile background in comedy. She's in movies like Barefoot in the Park and uh, Any Wednesday. And she's playing, those are very, like, light roles. But in this movie, like when... um, Dolly Parton hog ties uh, Dabney Coleman and he's on the ground in the office and then Jane walks in and her voice drops an octave and she goes, oh dear God. <laughs> like that's so her. That's yeah. so her. Like, yeah. That's really like, like, uh, like uh, the, the, the crusty cynicism. <laughs> the, like, you know, the, uh, I've seen it all kind of vibe. Yeah, almost authoritarian in a way. It's just like, you know, she kind of is very, you, you do get the sense, you get the sense that she probably was a great producer. You know what I mean? Like, and like was navigating a ton. Speak a little bit about like where she was at in the cultural canon and went in 1980 when this comes out, because I think that's really interesting her to come along at this time. I think that maybe not everyone really knows about how controversial she was in the 70s. And you are a super fan. So I'm wondering if you can fill in some gaps. Oh, sure. So in the 60s, Jane Fonda was this, you know, the the daughter of Henry Fonda and an America's sweetheart looking girl. She was sort of a known cool girl. Mm -hmm. And then she became, as her films kind of darkened, and she started starring in movies like They Shoot Horses, Don't They, and Clute, which she won her first Oscar for. She became extremely political. Mm -hmm. She became extremely anti-Vietnam. And, you know, we were loving Richard Nixon at the time. So Mm -hmm. that, like, didn't sit well with everybody. And, uh, you know, there was famously extreme backlash towards Jane Fonda that pushed her away from Hollywood for a while. And she finally reemerged in the late 70s, producing her own movies and uh, getting nominated for Oscars again and sort of ingratiating herself back into the comfortable American mainstream. But she hadn't really starred with women before in anything. Most of the movies she had been in previously are her opposite some, you know, equally stern man like Donald Sutherland or right. um, uh, Michael Sarazen and They Shoot Horses, Don't They? At any, at any rate. So, uh, this is the moment before she does the workout empire. Right. And so she's sort of becoming just a known glamazon, you know, with gigantic hair. And mm-hmm. it all begins here at nine to five. Yeah. And I would I would tell everyone listening to this podcast that if you have not watched Jane Fonda in five acts, it's one of my favorite things I've seen over the past couple of years, and it is on HBO Max. So that is something that you should definitely check out. I would also, you know, the thing too is like you do understand, you know, having been through everything that she went through in the 60s and 70s that she says, you know, we actually have to watch what we're really doing here. And throughout the process of editing this film, you know, I think lightening it as it goes because she was super concerned about preaching to the audience because she knows what happens when she takes a big stance that alienates an audience and obviously she wants people to see it. So it's... right. But um, I honestly think that what Jane was at the time might have been counterbalanced by Dolly, you know, because here here we have sort of, you know, really like like a very liberal face in Jane, Uh a lightning rod, exactly. And then you have Dolly, who is the heartland. And to see them together, I think is probably, you know, obviously more beneficial to to Jane, who, who I think needed that at the time. But Dolly, you know, it helps cross her over to, I think, maybe liberal audiences who see her and, you know, have like, think she has like a little bit of a conservative country stink on her. And to see them together, like, I think it 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 rounds the movie out in a way that lets people just have fun with it. Truly. And also, this works for the whole triad because, like, Lily yeah. Tomlin being a kind of one of a kind, but like uh, like a sketch actor mm-hmm. and, you know, a one woman show veteran, like, 
that's not the same thing as what Jane came from. That's not the same thing as place, some places where Deli came from. So their their easy chemistry and their camaraderie is just so second to none. And also, this movie just calls to mind to me, we need not only more movies where it's just women on screen. Mm. We need movies where a man or men are the enemy. Right. Because, like, I'm so bonded to them. Like, Because I, I don't think the entire movie is about the men. But they get to respond to him, they, and that gets to force them closer together. And I just right. want to see them together, yeah. you know? So let's respond to the weird uh, uh, stimuli in the outer world that's sometimes misogynist, sometimes ageist, whatever. Sometimes mm. it's good. Yeah. And then bring it back to just us. Yeah. it's. I think it's sort of interesting. Like, you know, Dolly, I mean, I think she's probably best known for this. And then obviously, you know, her next film, the big, big film that would that would follow it is Steel Magnolias, where she's also up up there with, you know, some of Hollywood's best at the time and obviously a very strong female ensemble. But I wonder if, like, the result of having this experience, which was obviously a good one, and Dolly being someone who probably could cherry-pick her movie roles when she has her insanely successful country music career, um, I wonder if she said, no, you know, I only want to try to recreate experiences like the one I had on 9 to 5, and this one feels like it might be, because it's a lot of women. <laughs> Yeah, you'd think. I mean, she was obviously in a lot of other movies at the time, like Best right. Little Whorehouse in Texas and stuff. Right. Um, shout out to Charles Durning, who was great. But uh, no, she, I mean, I love her just with other women. I just love her. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's something specific about... She, she's so good at communicating sympathy and I've been there. And, yeah, she's a great uh, oh, friend. Oh, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. She she really... She plays... Um, she she um, and maybe it is just that you know when she talks it's every word she says is a song it really is she's just yeah. very <laughs> yeah very soft and welcoming and yet she does have edge you know what i mean like and i think i probably my favorite scene in this entire movie is the scene which is her fantasy which is her playing boss and status on franklin hart something wrong nothing's wrong i just want to check your bod turn around for a second Boy, you got a nice ass frame. Mrs. Rhodes, I am a married man. Forget about your wife, Frank. I mean, you may be hers in the evening, but you're my boy from nine to five. Him coming in and sort of playing the secretary and her being like, just like there's an ease with which she's playing status on him, which I also think is great. And I think is like really rounds out her performance. And we know she was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Actress Musical Comedy, which, you know, it's something, but <laughs> it's a great, well-rounded performance. And I think that my favorite scene in it is that one where she's playing boss. And she says things like, why don't you h- hike up your pants a little bit more? You got yeah, a great you got package. A, you got why a nice you package. Rowdy. Wow. For yeah. sure. And I, and I love that the cologne he's wearing is called Stud. <laughs> right. Which, by the way, I, I don't think is, that might not even be a joke. Like, things were just called that once I upon know. a time. Yeah. Yeah. There is, um, of course, I, I think a controversial thing about this film, and I, I, this is, I'm happy you're here to discuss it. Is I, while we're talking okay. about while we're talking about Dolly, and while we're talking about this film, of course, synonymous with this is the song Nine to Five. Now, as a of sort course. of Oscars um, scholar, yes, this to me, I, this is egregious that this song doesn't win Best Original Song. I wonder if you feel the same way. And it lost to Fame, if I'm not, fame. not mistaken. Irene Cara's yes. Fame. It is controversial. Uh, let me just say something. This movie kicks off with the song Nine to Five, and it's what the women are walking to work off to the race to the beat of the to the typewriter kind of uh, yep beat of the song. Takes you the fuck away. Yep. I am so in this song. It's the rare song where it's describing a situation that's common to a lot of women. Mm-hmm. It's talking about working, and every lyric adds something, colors the experience. It's, it like doesn't even repeat itself. Mm-hmm. Like one of the lines I love is. 
they let you dream just to watch them shatter. I mean, think of a, being a woman in like, you know, a tesseract of offices like that. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you even have a little bit of hope that things are going to be different for you, that mm-hmm. there's a little bit of ambition that you can somehow exercise and elevate your position. But you know, even that is a part of their trick. Like, mm-hmm. you only can survive in that environment if you have that. If you didn't have that, you'd be out the door. Like, yeah. I gotta get out of here, you know? Yeah. So it's like, it's it's extremely perceptive, even though it feels kind of glib. Like, all the lyrics just roll off her tongue. Yeah, well, it, that's, I mean, it's part of what makes her such an incredible uh, songwriter and where you see her country roots come in because it is storytelling, but it's also, it, it's that same quality that she brings when she's acting, which is it's it's sympathy, it's empathy. It's, you know, because really she's describing you in motion in the first verse and then she's describing you in emotion in the second verse and then in that exploration there's something really 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 interesting and you know you do go on a ride with her i just feel like and it's especially in terms of tone setting in film like what you say about like being immediately in it from the beginning like that is so huge like those opening seconds of a movie the opening minutes of a, of, of a film like this you earn it all not every movie just has a Dolly Parton that's going to offer something like this to it. And so, no. while I understand the cultural impact of fame, I wonder if that was a rare moment where they tried to be cool. Um, you know what I mean? Instead of like actually looking at the work, because 9 to 5 is sort of unbeatable for me. Obviously, it wins two Grammys for Best Country Song and Best country female vocal performance and is nominated for song of the year. And this was a huge hit number one on the billboard charts for two weeks. Um, and one of the biggest hits of the decade for Dolly Parton, but for this to miss the Oscar win is, is kookaroo to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess it's, be, it's one of those things where fame is a musical movie. So mm. people want to award that, but also this happened later in Dolly's career too, because she wrote traveling, traveling through, through from, Transamerica, great song. So good. Underrated song. And she lost to It's Hard Out Hard Out Here for a Pimp. Which, again, feels like them trying to be cool. Because if you look at yeah. the content of the songs, it is not actually a fair comparison. And I, it's just, it, it kind of drives me nuts that she has offered this level of brilliance to film twice. And then, you know... Hasn't been rewarded for it, but listen. <laughs> Wait, one question I did have for you, and I wonder if you know this, because I wonder how it speaks to this film, 9 to 5. How long has Lily Tomlin been publicly queer? Do you know that? Well, it's an interesting story because they had offered her the cover of Time magazine if she came out. But what? I don't know that she officially came out, and she didn't do it. And then I think... The deal is later she, much later she did, but she's been with Jane Wagner for like hundreds of years. Right. So speaking of Lily Tomlin and her queerness, I have a segment on this (laughs) podcast that you may remember, Lewis. It's called, But How Is It a Queer Narrative? Now, 9 to 5 is offering many, 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 many different queer narratives. I've listed some of them here. Matt Stillo, can you give me my goddamn beat, please? Coffee. Being organized. Dolly Parton is in the movie. Bondage. Chosen family. Jane Fonda is in the movie. Changing from a rooster to a hen with one shot. The concept of stuffing something in a trunk. Lily Tomlin is in the movie. Being hated by Ronald Reagan. So that's sort of how this movie is a queer narrative. I don't know, Lewis, did I miss anything? 
Yeah, the name Roz, which is <laughs> you. You say the name Roz, and it's like Gatorade. I like, I, I, like the whole cooler has been poured on myself. Yeah, um, I mean they've said it before, but gay rights. <laughs> yes, right. Um, also, just I mean, turning to female solidarity and and away from the organization, the spec like the specter like organization <laughs> that is men. Oh, hundred. That seems queer to me. Yeah, you, you know, know, I, I, you really, people really forget that this movie is sort of an origin story for harnesses that we've seen in I'm Cocky Boys on OnlyFans. You know, when the, what they put Franklin Hart Jr. Folsom, in. Yeah. Oh yeah. What well, the no? He is in a contraption that I know I've seen certain porn stars get fucked in. Oh, it totally. suggests also. Man, when Jane gets caught with that guy and her ex-husband says, mm-hmm. uh, So, that's what you're into now. Bondage. What's that? Bondage, S&M, sex games. If I want to have, have an affair or, or play, play sex games or do M&Ms, you can't stop me. Her, like, sputtering that she's, like, into <laughs> S&M and then calling it M&Ms. Very yes, funny. yes, yes. Oh, wow. Yes, I completely forgot about that entire, <laughs> her having to pretend that she's now into, like, a bondage freak. That was very cute. Um, yeah. Also, the song Nine to Five. Uh, any song, okay, not only is it like a lady empowerment anthem, which is yeah. inherently queer, mm-hmm. but the drumming of fingernails and, or like the the, the shuffling of fingernails, oh, yeah. literally making a sick beat mm-hmm. out of primping. Acrylics. Come yeah. on. Acrylics, yeah, acrylics. acrylics yeah. as instrument, that's a queer narrative right there. Tons of them in Definitely. this film. Now, I do have a segment here called Hot Takes. Where I have people from, I I have people sort of send in their hot takes about the movie. Oh, okay. Oh gosh, this is here, dangerous. This here we go. So Christopher H has really chosen violence here, and he says this is a traditional 1940s style comedy with the same plot, same characters, but regrettably lesser actors. Oh my gosh, how dare he! I, it's so crazy. This is his last day on Earth because I'm sending <laughs> my militia after him. I know. Oh my gosh. Lesser so- actors. I think Lily is one of the best comic grounded actors ever. ever. Dolly's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Also, I think I think Jane kind of sinks into her role a little bit more as it goes on. But mm-hmm. I love her like kind of like heightened, shrill housewife reactions. I think it's appropriate for the comedy in the movie. It's almost like, you know, you mentioned that this was different for her at the time, but it's like, she really does play uptight very well. And I mean, like, she yeah, she uh-huh. certainly plays high status very well. I mean, I, this is bizarre, but like, I mean, her big return to, I guess, comedy movies there after a long time was Monster-in-Law, a movie I fucking right. am obsessed with. <laughs> I love Monster-in-Law. And I, thought I, she, ha- I haven't seen it since, like, I saw it on TBS in 2008. I thought she brought the best out of Jennifer Lopez, too. I mean, I I thought that they really sort of went at each other in a really fun way. And Monster-in-Law, for everyone listening, might be on HBO Max. And if it's not, we'll take this out. But if it is, you you should stream that one. I think it's one of J-Lo's better ones. And it's Jane Fonda having a real gas of a time. Do I have any other uh, hot takes here? Betsy T says... 9 to 5 was Dolly Parton's first movie. She thought she needed to learn everyone's lines in addition to her own. The chemistry between the three was off the charts, and I like to think that her knowing the other's lines may have helped. I think you're probably right there, Betsy. I I hope it did, yeah. I wonder, that's so funny. I wonder if she did that in in subsequent movies at all. I bet she learned not to, because these scripts belong. But the thing is, like, for her to think that was what you were supposed to do was like come in and know everyone else's line. Like talk about like completely unselfish behavior. Just even that instinct is completely foreign to like, you know, someone of her caliber. And I mean, it's just, just three, three true legends in this movie. And also it's kind of, it's kind of amazing 
not kind of amazing that they're all still with us, but we shouldn't forget that they're all still with us because these three are like, I think, all getting really up there now. Like, how old is Jane Fonda? Jane Fonda will be turning 85 this year. Oh, it's been on my mind. Yeah. The, the, these are Jane, three uh, of the uh, best. Lily's like a year and a half. Yeah, Lily's like a year and a half younger than her. And then Dolly is, I think, born in 46. So she's younger than they are. She's like 74, 75. Um, but by the way, I just want to say that, so I'm 35. Mm-hmm. I don't know if anybody else has these pangs of mortality when they watch movies like this, but mm-hmm. to realize that Dolly Parton is 34 in this movie, younger than <sighs> I am, really, look, she looks fabulous. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not, this isn't a discredit to her, whatever. I just had to have a moment to swallow that. You know tough. what, though? The, you know what it is about Dolly? She, and, and I say this with all the love and the respect to the, in, in the world, and this, this means nothing either way, but she does eternally carry always 40 energy because there is a wisdom. There is a, yeah. there is, there is an inherent knowing about her that I think like only comes with people who are super talented, like preternaturally talented. And I do think that she does have that ch- that old world charm in a way. Maybe um, Amer- like Jane Fonda would att- attribute it to the American South. But she does have that <laughs> spirit that sort of, it gives sage. It gives uh, yeah. you know, all-knowing. On a, on, a, on a kind of base, less intellectual level, there's something about blonde celebrities of a certain time where they kind of are any age. Like literally, if I look at a picture mm-hmm. of Marilyn Monroe, I think I kind of think she's 80. You know, or um, oh yeah, uh, and of course, like the whole foundation of who Betty White is. You know, eternally the same age, whatever it is. Oh, exactly. I mean, Charlize Theron to me is twenty eight and fifty two. Like, I mean, she right. is she she exists somewhere, <laughs> and they're like, you could tell me she was any age, and I'd be like, absolutely one hundred percent. This concept should just be called Julie Bowen. You know, it's <laughs> just like you're in that. You're that space. You can't tell me you were a different age in that Adam Sandler movie than you were on. <laughs> I was going to say, was was she? And this is this is truly. Um, this is how you know it's not my culture. Is she Happy Gilmore or Billy Madison? She's Happy Gilmore. Happy Gilmore, because Billy Gilmore, uh, Billy Gilmore. Uh, uh, no, sorry, <laughs> Billy Madison point. is uh, uh, Bridgie Sampras. Bridgie Wilson Sampras. Uh, right, of course, Just a household name. <laughs> but yeah, so Julie Bowen, I think, is the same age in and Happy Gilmore as Modern Family, and you can't prove to me otherwise. 28 and 52, it's Charlize, it's Betty, it's Dolly Parton. And you know who else is all those things? Louis Fertel. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. (laughs) And I'm really happy I had you for this one because you were going to come in for the birdcage, and I said, no, he's a Jane super fan. I have to have him for 9 to 5. Totally. No, I'm literally surrounded by posters of Jane Fonda right now. So I'm pretending like this is like a jovial whatever conversation. No, I'm a deep creepy zealot. So, <laughs> And with that, thank you all so much for listening and come back in two weeks for a chat on one of my favorite documentaries, Tina, about the legend herself, Miss Tina Turner. To chat about that film, I'll be joined by the host of the HBO Docs Club, Ronald Young Jr. I'm a girl from a cotton field that pulled myself above what was not taught to me. Be sure to send in your hot takes on all things Tina to at HBO Max Movies on Twitter and Instagram. And make sure to check out Boz Lerman's Elvis, streaming now on HBO via HBO Max. God damn it, and enjoy your Labor Days. If you haven't already subscribed, rated, or reviewed HBO Max Movie Club, please do so on the iHeartRadio app, HBO Max, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might get your podcasts. Thanks for joining the HBO Max Movie Club. The movies we talked about today are currently available on HBO Max. Check the show notes for exact streaming dates. 
HBO Max Movie Club is a production of HBO Max and iHeartRadio, hosted by me, Matt Rogers. Our executive producer is Matt Stillo. Our producer is Sierra Kaiser. And today's episode was written and researched by Kate Voss. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>